Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. The event I'll be talking about with you today occurred in the year 1886, and as always, here's what else happened that year. On the 28th of January, Walter Arnold of Kent receives the first speeding conviction for driving in excess of the contemporary speed limit of 2 miles an hour. Between the 6th and the 15th of April, Great Britain and Ireland compete at the Olympic Games and win two gold medals, three silver and two bronze. Between the 18th and 20th of May, we saw the Newlyn Riots, protests by fishermen at Newlyn, Cornwall, against those from Lowestoft and elsewhere, fishing on the Sabbath, leading to military intervention. The 27th of August saw the shortest war in recorded history, the Anglo-Zanzibar War, which started at 9 in the morning, lasting for only 45 minutes. On the 14th of November, the Locomotives on Highways Act of the 14th of August comes into effect, raising the speed limit for road vehicles from 4 to 14 miles per hour and removing the requirement for a man to walk in front of a car to give warning. To celebrate this, an emancipation run of cars from London to Brighton is held. That same route is continued, called the London to Brighton Veteran Car Run. And lastly, on the 14th of December, the Glasgow Subway, the third oldest metro system in the world after the London Underground and Budapest Metro, begins operations. But our event occurred on the 10th of September 1886 at the Dean Lane coal mine the site of one of Bristol's worst mining disasters. Word of the Week Now, this week's word is directly related to our story today. After Damp now, afterdamp is a toxic mixture of gases left in a mine following explosion, 
caused by methane-rich fire damp, which itself can initiate a much larger explosion of coal dust. After damp is composed primarily of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide and nitrogen. The high content of carbon monoxide is a component that kills. It clumps together the haemoglobin in the blood, depriving victims of oxygen. If you happen to be strolling around Dame Emily Park in Bedminster and you see by the skate park a large concrete slab that used to be the base of a bandstand, you may be intrigued to know that it covers the pit head of the Dean Lane coal mine, the site of Bristol's worst mining disaster. You see, it was a normal Friday afternoon and those above ground had no idea what was happening in one of the lower works of the mine. The accident occurred in the top vein of the steeple pit, a small shaft about 45 metres deep, situated a short distance from the bottom of the main shaft, which leads to the surface. The explosion happened just before 3pm on the 10th of September 1886, where there were 20 men and boys at work. Above ground, a loud explosion was heard, and on further inspection, they realised that an explosion had occurred. The news quickly spread, and a crowd of anxious colliers soon gathered. The manager, Mr John Bennett, the son of the owner, went down the mine himself and worked alongside others to rescue the miners who were trapped by debris from the explosion. The party discovered the cage for transporting workers below ground had been forced upwards, jamming the gearing machinery, so they had to use a bucket and rope to get down. There was still a lot of afterdamp around which, together with the fallen earth, made the rescue extremely difficult for the party. A local reporter said, As darkness came on, numerous lamps were lit up and a blazing fire illuminated a large crowd and in the black surroundings it made one of those scenes that were not easily forgotten. The first person the rescuers found was George Hyman, aged 16, from Beaufort Street in Bedminster. Unfortunately, it was quite obvious that he was dead and his body was brought to the surface where it was discovered that he had lost a leg and was badly burnt. The next to be found was Joseph Jeffries, aged 15, and Moses Rowland, aged 25. They were both suffering from extensive burns and were treated by Dr H. A. Brennan, the colliery surgeon, who wrapped them in blankets and anointed their wounds with oils to help relieve their intense pain. After a very long time, another collier was brought to the surface, Edward Summers, aged 21, who was suffering from burns to one of his arms and some of his body. Thomas and Henry Coles, two brothers, were also brought up and, after being treated by the medical team, were allowed home. Many men were brought up unconscious. Apparently there was a signal for those above ground to tell them what actions need to be taken 
for whomever was being brought up. Three blows of a whistle indicated the cage was coming up, five blows for wounded men, and six blows for a dead body. The last of the dead was brought out of the pit at about 2am on the Saturday. This was announced to the crowd outside, which had gathered for hours waiting for any news of loved ones. They were gently dispersed by the police. The dead were initially laid out in the carpenter's shed, where relatives were allowed to view the bodies. Then they were taken to Bedminster Police Station, and the last two were placed alongside their colleagues at 3am in the parade room. This sad scene was made worse by the disfigurement of some of the victims, whilst others, in contrast, looked like they were just sleeping. Two more men died in hospital the next day, bringing the total number of fatalities to ten. Their names were Albert Latham and Samuel Jones, both from Bristol, the latter married with children. The father of one of the missing men, William Garland, went to the hospital on the Saturday morning and saw all the injured, but couldn't find his son. At that point, there were eight men there, most in critical condition. On the Saturday afternoon following the accident, Mr H. S. Wasborough, coroner for Bristol, opened the inquest at the General Hospital and also at the Bedminster Police Station where the bodies were lying. The coroner, in opening the inquiry, said that We are called together to inquire into one of the most fearful colliery calamities that has happened in Bedminster, Bristol. That had occurred certainly within the memory of the oldest man present. The result was the death of ten people, and the accident was in its nature unprecedented, in that the neighbourhood, as gas was unknown, in the Bedminster collieries. There was almost an immunity from that destructive element in their local mine. <laughs> Word on the street. This week, my friends, we venture to Louisa Street in BS2, Bristol. And it's been suggested that the road is called after the Lady of the Haystack, a mysterious woman who appeared at Flaxborton in 1776 and slept in a haystack for four years. She then had the doubtful advantage of being befriended by Hannah Moore, who had her removed to a private asylum in Hannam. It was later rumoured that she was an illegitimate daughter of the Emperor of Austria. She became totally insane and died in 1800. Sometimes history throws up a story that you really can't make up. The owners of the mine, the Bennett, said that their mine was one of the best regulated collieries in England and believed the most careful supervision was exercised for the safety of the men employed in the mine. The government inspector of mines was not there that day, but he said he'd be at the adjournment and would give evidence of the cause. The bodies were then officially identified, and there were some heart-wrenching scenes as relatives saw the charred remains of either their husbands or their sons. The medical testimony was to the effect that most of the men died from choke damp and severe burns. The inquiry was then adjourned. 
The miners of the Dean Lane pit decided to hold a meeting at the Albert Hall, West Street, Bedminster, with John Jenkins presiding. There were two collection boxes being passed around the attendees by Frederick Hull and William Norris to gather donations for the widows and orphans of those killed by the explosion. Arrangements were made that each of the five widows would get a sum of five shillings each week for five years and the children two shillings and sixpence per week for the youngest and two shillings for the rest until the age of 13. The eight injured men were also given a weekly allowance ranging from seven to 21 shillings. These sums would be paid by the company. During the meeting, several employees made very pertinent observations of the working of the pit, like the ventilation by a small underground shaft leading to the incline where the explosion happened. One man said that one of the inspectors had suggested that if the skip working in this shaft had a bottom composed of bars instead of one piece of wood, the presence of the skip in the shaft would less interfere with the airway, meaning that there would be more ventilation and this accident probably wouldn't have happened. A man called Tonkins discussed the site of the explosion and his view differed to that of the manager and inspectors. He believed the explosion took place in the lower part of the incline and gave two reasons for this view. He called the inspector's attention to the ventilating arrangements in various parts of the mine and measurements had been taken of the upcast shaft as well as the cage to see if there was sufficient airway around the cage to allow air to ascend without hindrance. During the meeting at the Albert Hall in Bristol, a letter to the Bedminster Coal Company was approved. In it, the workers said that they weren't going to go back to work as long as certain officials held appointments in the pit, and a deputation was sent to the company with this letter. George Day, one of the representatives of the company, then gave an account of the interview with John Bennett, one of the mine owners. Some conversation then took place as to the funeral of the men killed, and several speakers expressed regret that the internment had not taken place under a group arrangement, so that not only the Dean Lane Colliers, but others in the Bedminster Mines could have attended to show their respect. It was, however, too late for this to be done, and the meeting resolved to attend, en masse, the funeral of James March, which was fixed for half past twelve that day. Another meeting of the miners was held in the evening of the same day in the Albert Hall, West Street. Mr Dunn of Colford in Radstock addressed the meeting on the need of a union and promised the information they required with a view to some organisation of their ranks. The chairman was fully behind this idea, adding that they had been disunited for far too long and he hoped that this calamity, as sad as it was, would have the effect of promoting greater unity. They had once been united, and he did not see why they couldn't be united again. Not to do any injury to the owners, but to try and do justice to themselves. 
During what turned out to be a very influential meeting, many complaints about the defects in the pit were aired by those who really knew them, the workers. But the answer was that they had no union, and no one man could act alone. In the end, they decided once again that they weren't going to return to work until certain minor officials were dismissed, one of whom was the fireman, Isaac Hamilton, who had the responsibility of making sure explosions never occurred in the mines in the first place. The chairman of the meeting was overwhelmed by the strength of feeling and bowed to the majority. The inquest on September the 20th returned a verdict of accidental death and added that there was no negligence on the part of the managers or bailiffs. Her Majesty's Mines Inspector, Thomas Cadman, was adamant that he didn't accept the Collier's evidence that the gas had been building up in the area due to lack of ventilation. But in direct conflict with what he'd just said, he went on to say that there should be more ventilation, that lamps should be used from now on instead of naked flames. The evidence showed that all the victims died of suffocation as a result of methane. In no particular order, the victims of the disaster were George Hyman, age 16, a tram boy who was killed by falling from the top of the lower shaft, a distance of nearly 55 metres. His right foot was cut off and his leg was broken and there were other serious injuries. Witnesses thought that a tram had also fallen on him. There was Robert Tovey, age 19, John Drake, 14, who was burnt severely and probably died from shock. William Garland Jr., 29, who left a widow and five children. He died from burns. James Millard, age 16. Richard Davis, who left a widow and one child. He was killed by asphyxia from the damp. He was also badly burnt. James Marsh, 34, who left a widow and seven children. William Moxham, 48, left a wife and several children. He died from asphyxia and burns. Albert Latham, aged 18, and Samuel Jones, 26, who was married with a family. A key point was made in the Bristol Mercury the following Tuesday, September the 14th. Each of these men is most highly spoken of by his neighbours and friends and those who know the victims best unite in bare testimony to their good character, their steady industrious habits and their attachment to their humble families. The widows and orphans will have to face poverty and privation unless the generous hearts of citizens respond liberally and promptly to the appeal. A letter in the newspaper from W. Terrett a local vicar, showed the depth of feeling the incident had on people. The terrible disaster of Friday last at the Dean Lane pit had cast a cloud of sadness over the whole neighbourhood. The overwhelming grief of the widows, the tears of the older children, the bewilderment of the little ones, constitute a picture not to be forgotten. The first funeral was that of George Hyman, which took place at 10 o'clock at the Wesleyan Burial Ground, Back Lane. James March's funeral at half past 12 was largely attended. 
the colliers at the meeting in at the rear of the mourners, the Reverend R. Bentley officiated and announced that a special funeral would be held on Sunday evening in the new chapel and wasn't going to mention the disaster during the current funeral. In fact, he was so greatly moved by the grief before him that he couldn't have said anything anyway. A collection was made at the service in aid of the bereaved families. In the afternoon, John Brake was buried in Nelsey. The funeral of the rest of the men took place on the 16th of September. Robert Tovey's was at the Wesleyan Chapel, and those of Samuel Jones, James Millard, Richard Davis, and William Garland at Bishopsworth at 4.30pm. The Bristol Mercury's report of the funeral said, The four funerals being held at the same time and place gave the colliers employed at the pits an opportunity of making a public demonstration of their grief at the loss of their comrades, and their sympathy with the widows and the deceased. William Garland's body was conveyed in a hearse, while the others arrived in open funeral cars, the widows, orphans and other relatives following behind. As the melancholy procession winded its slow way towards Bishopsworth, there were many indications of grief and respectful sympathy on the part of the spectators who assembled at points on the road, and there was a very touching demonstration of public feeling. The police band gave a concert on Mr Terrett's lawn at Church House in Bedminster, and the proceeds went to the relief fund. In the end, the fund raised an amazing £1,620, which is £173,054 in today's money. Once upon a time. Boring. It was the best of times. It was the worst. You got that right. What's your problem? We want new stories. Hi, it's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host the ever-trending story, a weekly podcast where we bring to life a fictional story created by our own minds and some of the hottest, craziest trends from the internet. Find us wherever you download podcasts and be sure to join the fun on social media at EverTrendingPod. In the news today, guess who I bumped into on my way to get my glasses fixed? Everybody! Back in the day facts. And so we begin with the 22nd of July, 1833. The Slavery Abolition Act passes in the British House of Commons, initiating the gradual abolition of slavery in most parts of the British Empire. On the 23rd of July, 2010, English-Irish boy band One Direction is formed by Judge Simon Cowell, on the X Factor Series 7. Later on, going to finish in third place, they would go on to become one of the biggest boy bands in the world and would be very influential on pop music in the 2010s. On the 24th of July, 1851, the long-hated window tax is abolished in the United Kingdom. Imposed in 1696, it was a banded tax so that the more windows a house boasted, the more its owners would pay in tax. Inevitably, property owners and developers did what they could to avoid the levy. 
The rich built new houses with the minimum number of windows, while the poor in their tenement housing simply bricked up the windows, making their cramped dark dwellings even more gloomy. On the 25th of July, 1797, Horatio Nelson loses more than 300 men and his right arm during the failed conquest attempt of Tenerife in Spain. On the 26th of July, 1945, the Labour Party wins the United Kingdom general election of July the 5th by a landslide, removing Winston Churchill from power. Although the national election was held on Thursday the 5th of July, polling in some constituencies was delayed by some days, and the counting of votes was delayed until the 26th of July, to provide time for overseas votes to be brought to Britain. On the 27th of July, 1890, Vincent van Gogh shoots himself and dies two days later. The 20th of July, 1540, sees Henry VIII of England marrying his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, and on the same day his former Chancellor, Thomas Cromwell, is executed on charges of treason. And lastly, on the 29th of July, 1588, we see the Battle of Gravelands, where the English fleet damages and scatters the invincible Spanish Armada, which is forced to make a long and costly retreat around Scotland and Ireland. Well, I'm afraid that's the end of today's show. And before I go anywhere, I'd like to thank those who brought the whole story to life. And this week, they were Joe Wilson, Molly Jeffries and Colin Ball from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as our very own Steve Shepherd. Thank you, one and all. <laughs>